Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for the good work you're doing in our refugee resettlement ministry. And every time I preach from now on, you're praying. <laughs> Thank you, friend. Um, all right. So as Ian said, my name is Dan Spino. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, and I get to uh, share God's word with you today. We're going to continue in our Keep Awake series, which is a study in the, in the book of First Thessalonians. Um, as, you've been, as you've been with us, we've been going through this for a number of weeks now. We're going to keep taking small chunks and just take a look at all the richness that God has for us in his word, one piece at a time. Uh, so we're going to continue in that journey today. We're going to be in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 17 through 3, 5. That's going to be our boundaries. Uh, but before we get there, I want to let you know, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare today. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a topic that we don't, I don't want to deal lightly with, uh, so forgive my sense of humor there. I uh, just want to make sure you guys are actually awake. Um, but it's a topic that we don't want to deal lightly with, and I understand that as we approach these waters, uh, that some of you are actually in intense spiritual warfare right now. I understand, too, that talking about this kind of like opens up avenues, maybe thoughts or questions that you may have had that might make you prone to spiritual attack. And, um, and just in general, I, I can understand that this just might be uncomfortable. Um, and I just want to say, I get it. You're not alone. Um, I'm sure others feel the same way. And um, I, I am there with you as well. This is not something to just kind of deal lightly with, but it is something we need to adjust because this is where our text takes us. Um, so to start our time off, um, I want to share with you some lyrics from a hymn. Uh, I've been listening to this hymn album for, for about a year now or so, just somebody who's covering some of the, some of the classical hymns, and, and they're just, they love the beautiful words. And, and the hymn I want to share with you, just some of the, some of the verses from it anyways, is Abide With Me. Um, it's written by Henry Fan- Francis Light. Um, there's, I, we don't know the exact date of when he wrote this hymn. Uh, there's a number of markers in his life that kind of puts it in a ballpark between 1820 and 1847, so like a 25-year kind of work in progress, if you will. Uh, but regardless of how he got there, we are here with it. Uh, he was a poet. He actually won scholarships for his poetry, for his work. Um, and this is one of the poems that he wrote that somebody later put to music. And because I love you, church family, I won't sing. I will just read this as is. Um, and you are welcome to sing if you want. We're going to start the, the, first, the first verse. It says, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helper, helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. A few lines down, he says, I need thy presence every passing hour. And then listen to this. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. And just one more line, he says, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still, if thou abide with me. We're going to need to dwell on Christ abiding in us as we look at, this, as we look at this, these verses today, as we deal with spiritual warfare. And I love that line, what but thy grace can foil the tempter's power. Let me pray for us as we get into God's word. Father, I thank you for our time of like just musical worship, prayerful worship, hearing your word, just, just, just the greetings, our ministries that we're doing, to all the ways that you're at work in our lives, that you're drawing us into a deeper relationship with you. And now as we kind of peel back 1 Thessalonians and we take a look at your written word that you've penned through the Apostle Paul for us, there's richness here, there's goodness here that you want us to glean from. So I ask now that all of us have come from somewhere. Some of us came from a life group launch. Some of us are just maybe from a fellowship group or just coming in now, regardless of where we came from. Help us now to kind of like set that aside and to ready our hearts for what you have for us so that we can just think properly about spiritual warfare. And I ask that you would use me, the broken vessel that I am, for your glory. Let your words just come forth. Whatever is not of you, push aside. We long to see you and know you more intimately. So use this time in that endeavor. 
We pray in your name and for your glory. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 2. It's uh, verses 17 through 3, 5. Um, and our main idea is very much connects, again, like I said, to this hymn that, we, that I just wrote, uh, that I just read for you. It's a text for those that have placed their faith in Jesus. Uh, this is a text for believers. And as Christ abides in you, Paul wants to encourage us to continue in your faith. That's what we're going to be looking at. How do you continue in your faith? How do you abide? How do you remain? How do you persist? That's the point of our text today. It's not a text calling people to faith. It's a text for people that, are, that have already placed your faith in Jesus to remain in him. I'm going to read our text for us. Uh, I'm going to go back a few verses uh, and then just borrow from like the first part of, of 3.6 just to kind of paint a full picture of what's going on in this uh, context. We'll have the verses for you up on the screen too. It says, starting in verse 14, that's where I'm gonna start. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. We're gonna stop there. Just wanted to paint a context for our verses today. This is what we're gonna look at. We're gonna look at three things. The context, the problem and the solution. And if you have notes from the handout, there's a little asterisk there. That's, we're gonna get to that in a moment. That's intentional, not a typo. So the context, the problem, the solution is we look at remaining in our faith. So first, the context. Uh, there's three pieces that I wanna just, just show you, kind of paint a picture of what we're looking at today. It really helps us understand the problem when we understand the context. Paul planted this church. Paul planted this church. He planted the Thessalonian church. He then was left. It says he was torn away. He, he left under duress, obviously. And he was concerned about his brothers and sisters. So what does he do? He can't go, so he sends Timothy to go and check on them. He wants to make sure that nobody has moved them from their faith. So Timothy goes, and then Timothy returns. Verse 3.6a. So what we have is Timothy has actually given Paul the report. So this isn't like a future thing, like I'm going to be sending Timothy to you. He said, I sent Timothy to you to check in on your faith because I'm concerned for you. Timothy has come back and he has given him this report. So that's what's going on with this whole letter, 1 Thessalonians. He then pens this letter and it gets sent to the church. But that's kind of the, the initial context I want you to hear. The second thing that I want you to know is the historical context or the place of writing. It most likely puts Paul in Corinth and in terms of his missional journeys, we're in Acts 17 and 18, somewhere in there, time frame. It's the second missional journey. And let me just encourage you, like, take time to read that later. Take time to, and when you read it, like, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, if you have a study Bible, take a look at, like, Paul's second missionary journey. Take a look at it and just see where he's going and what's going on. Because it really helps illuminate the text. 
Like we read like Paul left and went to, Ber- went to Berea and we're like, okay, no big deal. It's like, that's like 30 to 50 miles. Like it is a big deal. We're going to talk about that here in a brief moment. So looking at Acts 17, we're going to look at verses, verses uh, two through five. Um, we see Paul and Silas are spreading the gospel in the, to the Thessalonians, and this is what we have. It says, and when Paul went in, as was custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture. So he's there for at least three weeks. We know that. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. This is what's going on in this city when Paul is there planting this church. But the situation is actually more dire than you might even think. Because as we continue in Acts, we see that Paul and Silas are sent by night to the next town, to Berea, 30 to 50 miles away. I didn't do an exact measurement. I used my thumbnail and I was like, yeah, that's about halfway. Um, 30 to 50 miles or somewhere in that. Just know like it's not you getting in your car and going to New Cumberland. And they went by night, by the cover of night. They left this town, and they go to Berea. And what do we, what do we see there? Um, it says they get to Berea, and the text says, the Berean Jews were more noble than the Thessalonian Jews. I love that. <laughs> There's an actual contrast. They are more noble than those Jews were. And they are, they, they are called out in sharp context. And they, they reason with Paul and Berea. They are, they're examining the scriptures to see if what he said is true. Like They're like, they're receiving this message. But what happens? Check out verse 13. It says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Dang. (laughs) These Jews were on a mission. They actually chase them out of the next town. They, they, like, they, go, they leave the comfort of their home, travel 30 to 50 miles, probably by foot, right, to the next town to get rid of Paul and Silas who are preaching the gospel there. That is persecution. Think about that for a moment. There's more laws about cleanliness and the Jewish customs than you have on your weekend chore list. And these Jews are willing to like associate with the wicked, with the men of rabble, these wicked men, and they're willing to forsake all their standards. Why? To shut the gospel message down, to chase Paul and Silas out. Whoa, that's a big deal. And there's strong language to describe them. They're wicked men. They're rabble. This isn't passive aggressive. This is overt They're hunting them down, willing to go to the next town to chase Paul out of that town. That's how mission-minded they are. And if they're willing to do that, right, if they're willing to leave their own town, to go, like, to the next town and chase them out of that town, think about what they would be willing to do to the believers in their hometown. Third, then, this helps us understand this letter, and especially our context. Paul He's addressing the believers there, right? In this surrounding context of these hostile Jews, rabble, wicked men, Paul's addressing believers, and listen how he describes them. He says in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he mentions their steadfast hope. He says, you received the word in affliction. Your faith example has gone out from you. In verse 8, verse 9, you turn to God from idols, Verse 10, you're waiting on Jesus. In chapter 2, 13, it says, you've accepted the word as from God, as we talked about last week. Verse 14, you suffered for your faith. These believers in Thessalonica lived in this context. These are believers in this context alongside these just jealous Jews and the rabble and wicked men. And both of these points are important. These men and women Paul is writing to are believers. So Timothy is sent to them. He's not sent to sow seeds. 
He's sent to tend to the crops, right? They are believers. They place their faith in Christ. Paul's concerned about them. He sends Timothy to go and tend to them. He's not there to share the gospel with non-believers. At least that's not his primary objective, right? Paul and Timothy, they are so gospel-centered that they can't help but to share the gospel wherever they go. I mean, it's not like Timothy's going to see somebody that like, needs to hear the gospel and say, not now, I'm on a mission, <laughs> right? He's going to share the gospel. But his primary objective, what we have in these verses, is to check on the believers in the midst of this hostile environment on behalf of Paul. In light of this context, in light of this persecution and affliction at the hands of their fellow countrymen, fellow countrymen and fellow Jews, in light of this, Paul wants to know, are they holding strong in their faith? Are they holding on to their faith with their eyes on the prize? That they're reminded, like, the coming Jesus, like, that they're focused on him. And Paul does not mince words. There's something spiritual going on here. In verse 217, he says that we are, we are torn away. That word is like, has, like, orphaned. At, at its roots. It's like they were just ripped from them. These are his children. He calls them that earlier, right? And he was ripped away from them. He's in pain. And more so, he longs to come back. But what does he say in verse 18? Satan hindered us. Paul's not a guy that sees Satan behind everything. Elsewhere, he will say that he wanted to go to Asia. And what happened? The Holy Spirit said, nope. Shut it down. And he was able to discern, this is the Holy Spirit stopping me from moving forward. But here, he wants to return, but all he says is, Satan hindered them. We're not exactly sure what he means. Scholars are not clear on what specifically Paul is referring to. But we do know is that the Apostle Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, uses spiritual discernment, careful thoughtfulness, to discern that it is Satan at work. I want to come, I can't, this is Satan. And more so, he sees Satan at work in the afflictions of the Thessalonians. He says in 3.5 that he was concerned that the tempter had tempted you. It's in these afflictions at the hands of these wicked men, Paul sees Satan at work. I love one commentator pointed out that he said, like, it's not like these, these people probably did not realize that they're like being used by Satan, but nonetheless, Satan was using them. Paul's able to discern. This is a spiritual affront. Paul lets us know that he, he warned them about this direct attack against their faith. He warned them about that because being a believer means you're going to be persecuted. When you're living in a land that is just counter your values, you should expect persecution. In chapter 3, he says that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. He has warned them, that suffering for your beliefs is completely wrapped up with being a follower of Christ, living in a hostile land. But this time specifically, Paul says, Satan is at work. He wants to make sure that these believers are remaining in their faith as they're in the midst of these spiritual attacks, this spiritual warfare. That's our context so then this leads to our second point, the problem. The Thessalonians are facing spiritual warfare. We need to spend a few moments here talking about this. So here's a working definition of spiritual warfare. It's the attempted claim at a spiritual territory previously held by the opposing side. So let me say that again. It's an attempted claim at a spiritual territory previously held by the opposing side. Now, when we think of spiritual warfare, often we think of only one side. We think of Satan coming and attacking a believer, right? He's, he's attacking God's spiritual territory. He's, he's trying to take a claim at that that's held by Christ, by, it's held by God through the blood of Christ. That's what we often think of. But it can also be a believer being used by the hand, by, by, by God, by our, by our Heavenly Father as his hands and feet to step into enemy territory and to claim that back. Not because of something we did, but because of God at work 
in us and through us. There's, there's two sides to this war. But in this situation, it's Satan at work. He's trying to disrupt believers. And for our time today, this is the piece that we want to take a moment to talk about. So there's two things I want to kind of say about spiritual warfare to help us understand it. And we're going to talk about kind of two ways that it plays out in our context. So how do we properly think about spiritual warfare? First, we need to know that not everything, not everything that is bad in your life, the afflictions, the suffering, the pain, uncomfortable situations is driven by Satan. So let me say that again. Not everything is driven by Satan. Recall what I said about Paul. It's in Acts 16. The Holy Spirit prevented him from going into Asia And here he says it's Satan that's preventing him from coming back. Paul does not see Satan behind everything, but he also doesn't dismiss his work either. As you read through Paul's letters with your kind of like eyes open now, you'll see he addresses the devil's work. He addresses Satan's work time and time again. He doesn't put everything on him, but he's not afraid to also acknowledge his work at the same time. So for us then, when we are in these hard situations, when we're in our like afflictions, our sufferings, our grief, our sorrow, our own torment that we're in, there's a need to pause and to seek the Lord. Ask him to reveal to you what is going on. Spiritual discernment is key at discerning the roots. Bad things happen. Sin causes consequences Sometimes our Heavenly Father disciplines us for his good, and other times Satan is trying to knock you off your feet. There can be countless situations that we could talk through. Let me just say that you need discernment in finding the root. You need to kind of slow down, try to apply some discernment. Seek the Lord in prayer. Invite others even to pray with you. Our elders hold a, a monthly prayer. Every, every, every month, there's, there's no, you can come and meet with our elders, our spiritual shepherds, and, and just come to them and share what's going on with them and let them pray over you, pray with you. Perhaps they have a word of God for you. You could come down after service. We have a prayer team that would just love to meet with you. They would love to pray for you, especially if you're facing these spiritual, like, I need this, some discernment. I'm in this hard situation. Help me. And perhaps God has a word for you through them. Don't be quick to give Satan credit, but don't be quick to dismiss him either. That's first. Second, though everything may not be rooted in Satan as a source, that doesn't mean that he's, he's not taking advantage of that situation. So again, like in, in Paul, we look at Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about this like thorn in his flesh. Some of you are familiar with this verse. He has this thorn in the flesh, he says. It's a metaphor. We don't know exactly what he's referring to. But notice the twofold attacks that's going on in here. He says, the thorn made Paul weak so that God may be strong. It forced him to just be utterly dependent on his heavenly father. But also notice that this thorn was a messenger of Satan. When Paul is weak, God is strong in him because he's, but he has to depend on him. However, when Paul is weak, Satan appears strong because he can smell the blood. He is actively seeking the weakened, the hurting, the lonely, the grieved, the tired believers. Believers with their, with their guard down. He is, he is actively seeking you. He smells the blood. This is especially true if you're mired in sin right now. If you're trapped in some sin patterns, brother, sister, man, watch yourself. Satan is, he, he sees this. In a similar letter to believers scattered to a land of unbelievers, Peter, in 1 Peter, he says in verses five, chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Likewise, Paul talks about this as well in in a number of his letters. He says, don't give Satan a foothold. Be watchful. 
So regardless if Satan is at the root of your afflictions or not, it is something, or if it's someone else, he will try to use this. He will. He sees you weak. He wants to knock you from your faith. When you are in periods of, of these seasons of trials, just be aware of this. He wants to devour. It's active. He's not passive. But know too, our Heavenly Father is always Our Heavenly Father is always calling you back to him because he is a good father. And he is seeking to glorify himself in and through you in these seasons. So let me give you an example. This is like a hypothetical. Let's say you're unemployed because an organization shut down or maybe there was like a layoff, uh, whatever, might be the reasons you're kind of facing unemployment. You're in a tough spot. I think all of us can just agree, like, that's a really hard situation to be in, right? Like, probably not a lot of argument here. There's two things, though, that can happen. You can, you can keep pursuing God and see how he wants to glorify himself in this and through this, because he does. I'm not saying it's not hard. It can be hard and God can glorify himself. They go hand in hand often. Or we can just be like, let, you can let your guard down and just know like Satan, man, he's gonna see that and he's gonna attack you, right? The same situation. Where's your faith? Where's your guard? There's a spiritual battle going on around us all the time. All the time that we have to be conscious of. Now, it's not a reality that we can see right? I think, honestly, like, if we could peel back the curtains and, like, see, we'd be like, oh, no, I don't want to see that. Yeah, right? It's happening all the time. There's spiritual battles. There's, there's territories being sought after and fought for all the time. God is seeking his glory, and Satan is seeking to disrupt that. And we get caught in the middle in various ways. Paul is calling them, and he's calling us to this attention, we feel the impacts of this war. In this letter, Paul mentions the afflictions, the suffering that these believers face several times in verses three through five alone. He specifically, he says to the Thessalonians and to us today, he says, as a follower of Christ, you should expect to face, you should expect, you are destined to face afflictions and suffering. You are living counterculturally. In a world that is more in line with the agenda of Satan than that of our living King Jesus, we should expect to see persecution, suffering, and affliction. It's a natural outcome of living out your faith in a land that is just centered on Satan's values. My guess is that we, we probably understand this cognitively. I don't know that any of you, like if you're a follower of Christ, I don't think that you would disagree with that. Like, cognitively, right? But truthfully, we, we don't face this in the same way that the Thessalonians do. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, right, we don't face the same kinds of suffering and affliction that Paul warns these Thessalonians about. Most of us are not like being chased out of our town, and then if we were, if we moved to another town 30 to 50 miles away, or maybe perspective, 300 to 500 miles away, these same people aren't going to come and find you and chase you out of that town as well, right? Like, we don't live in that same type of reality, so why pause then and talk about spiritual warfare? Well, because there are, I would say, at the very least, there are two things that I want to talk about, two ways that I want to draw your attention to. There's probably many others that our church, this church family, feels all the time. The first is the culture wars, both subtle and overt. And the second is our interactions with other believers. So these are two ways that we feel kind of like what Paul was talking about, maybe like these afflictions in, in a different way. So first, let's talk about the culture wars. I don't know, have any of you heard of something called the Havana Syndrome? Has anyone heard about this? Yeah, there's a, there's a few, that, few of you that have. I'm gonna read from you from a Wall Street Journal article from taken in December. It says, in a new assessment published Saturday by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, scientists identified directed pulsed radio frequency energy as the most likely explanation for a series of symptoms experienced by diplomats posted at U.S. facilities. 
a broad category that includes microwave radiation. And it continues, these scientists concluded that the symptoms experienced by a number of the U.S. and Canadian diplomats, which included dizziness, headache, fatigue, nausea, anxiety, cognitive difficulties, and memory loss, were unlike any other disorder in the neurological or general medical literature. If you're a hypochondriac like me, let me just say it said diplomats. So if you're not a diplomat, you're probably okay. It's called the Havana Syndrome because they first detected this in Havana. Those are the first diplomats that experienced this. It's a, it's a sneaky attack on U.S. diplomats using this unseen, directed, and pulse radio frequency. It's an attack that like nobody notices. Like You don't see it, but the impact is huge. I think Satan is at work all around us in a very, very similar way. Whether it be through schedules that are too full of good stuff that we don't tend to our souls, right? Like we're too busy to read God's word. We're, we're too busy to talk to a neighbor. We're, there's too many things to do to, to actually make time to come and worship as a church family, we're, we're too tired to take time to pray. This busyness that is just in our culture. Or if it's within the culture at large, he is at work on you. And like the Havana syndrome, the attacks can be really sneaky. You might not even notice them as they're happening. It is hard to be a Christian, to live out your faith at work, in your neighborhood, at your school, at the local ball games, whatever it might be, it is hard to be a believer. There are fronts that go directly against what Christian believers believe and force us into very tough situations. And sometimes we don't even realize it's happening. We're just unaware. Having to deal with gender identity issues right now is huge. And how we think and talk about it plays itself out in our daily lives. God made them male and female, but society says that's optional. And I know some of you are wrestling with this very issue at work, in your homes. Truth is being questioned. Often it's just being bent to fit an agenda. And oftentimes we're, we're not even aware that it's happening. It's sometimes it's just subtle little increments that like drip away. In our surrounding environments, which we all live, work, go to school and play, it is hard to hold Christian values in a culture that tends towards the flesh. This isn't new, by the way. Believers have been facing this for years, for hundreds of years. Think of Daniel praying in his window against the edict of a king his refusal to eat the preferred diet. Think of the believers in Corinth. Last week, Trent encouraged you to read one chapter a day, right? If you don't know where to start, let me just encourage you, pick up the book of Ephesians. Pick that book. Just go through that nice and slow, one chapter a day. Chapters one and two has so much to say who you are, your identity in Christ, and three, four, five, six, like, man, it'll start taking you into the spiritual warfare. It'll help you see and understand, like, what is going on. The culture we live in creates really hard situations for you to maintain your faith. And if you're not watchful, if you're not paying attention, you will start to drift. You will. It's sneaky, I'm telling you. We see it all the time. Incremental decisions, but it's happening. If you want to hear from people, like if you want to talk to some people that are like feeling this like day in and day out, just grab a junior high, senior high, or like a college age student. Just go ask them, what is it like to be a student in this world today? I mean, these groups in particular are acutely aware of how their faith is a direct affront to living in this land. And they probably experience it more than most of us do just because of their, their broad social experiences. Like they're just exposed to so much more than most of us are on a day in and day out basis. But we can't expect culture to change to accommodate us wherever you find yourself. But we also can't change to accommodate culture either. We're called to remain in our faith. And we'll talk about what to do in a brief moment. But the second area 
where we experience spiritual warfare is within our church family. And I think that this is probably the most important thing that I want you to hear today, honestly. In a podcast that Stephanie and I were listening to recently, the speaker was addressing discipline. And she pointed out that in a corrective situation, it's not like a parent versus a child. Rather, she reframes it. She's like, it's parent and child on the same team versus the issue, the behavior, kind of like whatever the, whatever the problem might be. And I found that model so incredibly helpful. And like, you could replicate that idea across so many set- settings. When two believers disagree, we have to remember that it's not like you versus me, right? When we, when we come to issues, big and small, we often start to pit ourselves against each other. Approaching situations like this is the wrong approach. We forget we're on the same team. We're on the same team, approaching the same common win. It's not you versus me. It's you and me against whatever it might be. A bad behavior, a sin issue, a topic we disagree on, whatever it is. Whatever it is. In these situations, Satan wants to win. He delights in us fighting against each other. He's not trying to get you to join his team. That's not his goal. He just wants to disrupt your walk with Christ. He wants to distract you in your faith. He wants to tempt you to not believe in whatever form that might be. And nothing, I would imagine, nothing makes him more delighted than seeing a fractured body of Christ. A divided bride of Christ. A broken body. Probably the single biggest issue is this today. Is is this in our church today, right here. We've become distracted about what the common win is and started to fight against each other. Friends, we don't need to do that because the rabble and the wicked men, they're still out there. (laughs) There's enough enemies that we have in common that we don't need to make up more enemies. We're on the same team. Now more than ever, we need to learn how to speak direct truth and love. And let me emphasize it again. Direct truth. Not passive, not subtle, not out in a parking lot with some friends, but being direct, speaking truth with grace and love. And can I just tell you, sometimes a hard conversation is just a hard conversation. It's not conflict. You don't have to, like, confront somebody. It's just a hard conversation. Step into it. We've become accustomed to forsaking being direct and honest in the name of being nice and avoiding something that is hard. I love Patrick Lencioni here. He's an organizational strategist, and he says, we should be little J jerks, not big J jerks. What he means by that is, don't be afraid to, like, step into the hard and talk through a situation, honestly and directly but don't be mean about it, right? Don't be a big J jerk. You're not called to be mean, to be nasty, to be angry, but don't be passive aggressive either. That's not helpful. I recognize that certain conversations can be hard. I get it, man, I get it. But it can also be healing. Maybe we just reframe hard conversations as healing conversations. And it pushes back, get this, it pushes back the attempts of Satan to disrupt the church. So it's not unity for the sake of unity, where we just pretend everything's okay and we don't actually talk to one another about the issue, but real unity, where we start healing together. And listen, Paul models this for us. In a few weeks, you're going to hear a message about sexual integrity. He doesn't mince words, because in love, We have to be direct with one another. Paul loves these people. He's got to tell them. Because darkness hates light. And remember, we're on the same team. We're a family. Pursuing the same win. How can a body function well if it's fighting against itself? And friends, whether Satan is at the root of this or not, I'm not saying that this is like Satan doing all this, right? But whether he is at the root of this or not, our inability to kind of have these direct conversations or not, he's going to use it. He's going to smell that blood. 
and he is gonna delight in the fractures. Pay attention. He wants to use these situations for his gain. Spiritual warfare is real. That is the problem. So then, what is our solution? Point three. In light of the context, in light of the spiritual warfare around us, how then shall we live? Paul offers us some thoughts on the solution, but before I get to that, you'll notice that there's like a little asterisk here, right? And if you have the notes, if not, you can put that there. Because it's a spiritual battle, and by definition, we don't win spiritual battles. We're we're flesh, right? But God can be at work in and through us, for sure. It's God who wins these battles, Our job is to put ourselves in the position what Paul is writing to these Thessalonians about to remain in our faith so God can use us in these spiritual battles, right? They're they're just in realms that we can't see. They're spiritual, but ultimately we need God to win these for us. But there is something that we can do. We have a part to play. So there's, there's this vertical response looking at our relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus And then there's a horizontal response, looking at a relationship with other believers. So three pieces kind of vertically I want to talk through, and then horizontally. So first and foremost, declare out loud, often, repeatedly, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He is my King. Acknowledge Him. There is power in His name. We just sung about this. In 2.19 and 3.2, Paul points these believers back to Jesus as our Lord. And elsewhere in this letter, he mentions Jesus as our Lord and Savior. When you find yourself in these hard situations, when affliction comes, when pain is real, when suffering is present, when you are dwelling in a land that is in direct opposition to everything that you believe and all that you are, declare him as your Lord. Not passively, Right? Like, not in your head, like, hmm, there it is. No, out loud. Say it. Get out of your headspace and into your workspace. Jesus, you are my king. You are my Lord, and I am yours. There is power in this declaration, friends. This is the anecdote to spiritual warfare. And when Jesus says, mine, nothing can take that away from him. Nothing. No one, nothing. Listen to Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 31 through 37. What what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Verse 1, there is no condemnation. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation which will bow at the knee of Jesus will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Say his name. There's power. He, ah, there's nothing can separate us from the love of our Father that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Second, keep your eye on eternal values. Friends, keep your eye on the prize. Paul can't help but to talk about the coming of Lord Jesus. It's on the forefront of his mind constantly. Paul's letter is like almost completely centered on this one focus. And he mentions it again. He's just so much language. He says, for what is our hope or our joy or crown? And by the way, it's not a metallic crown that like, he's putting on our head. This is like a victor's wreath crown boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? He's saying, you're going to be there. He's coming. For you are our glory and joy. 
Paul knows and reminds them that through grace alone, through faith alone, they one day will stand in the presence of our Savior. He is sure of that. There's no doubt. He's focused on Christ's return and seeing these follower believers standing there alongside him. It's my joy and crown to see you there. This is a reminder for us. In light of your present afflictions, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't forget, don't forget what the prize is, what your wreath is. You are going to be standing before our Savior. He's going to say, well done, come in. He sees you. Only through faith alone, by grace alone. Third, the other third, Paul doesn't necessarily talk about this, but it is important to say in its prayer in these hard situations that you find yourselves in, when the spiritual battles are real, when they're perceived, when the afflictions are there, when there's suffering, when there's sorrow, pray. Pray with others. Pray alone. Pray scripture. Go back through the Psalms and just pray it. Take out the use and we put in your name, me, I. Pray scripture. Own it. Pray truth. Cry out for help. But pray. Because when we pray, we get to interact with our Heavenly Father. Pray. Finally, then, there's, there's a horizontal responsibility that we have, and it's, it's, it's Timothy's mission. It's Timothy's purpose to strengthen and encourage one another in authentic relationship. That's the whole reason why he sent Timothy. Notice Paul's language for his people. Like, it's really emotional, and some of us might get uncomfortable with that, but like, he uses really strong language. He says he was orphaned from them. He was torn away, not just separated. This was painful for Paul. It's a physical separation, not a relational one. He says, I'm still with you in heart. He says, we've endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you. We long to see you face to face. I wanted to come to you. He twice said we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left alone at Athens. Left alone at Athens just so we could hear how you were doing. He was concerned for their faith. He feared that they may have been moved from the rock of salvation. This is strong emotional language and it's strong relational language. It's a relationship and it was genuine. This comes forth from a sincere relationship and because he could not go, he sends somebody else on his behalf, a brother and co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Timothy was sent to establish, which means strengthen. That's really what that's going on in that word there, to strengthen them and to exhort or to encourage them. These are believers. How refreshing is that? Imagine somebody coming to you to support and to encourage you in your walk with Christ. It's mind-blowing. We need each other, friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me speak to you specifically. We need each other. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to state the need. It's healthy. We need to be strengthened and encouraged by each other. We need some wind in our sails. When was the last time you took a step towards someone, a friend, a family member? This isn't just some random person, right? But like, when was the last time you saw a friend, brother and sister in Christ, somebody you have relationship with, and you went to them with the goal of strengthening and encouraging that person in his or her faith. Not to fix, right? We love to fix around here. <laughs> Not to fix, but to strengthen and encourage. It's, it's all about the other person. It's not about you at all. You don't get to go home and tell everyone what you just did. Paul is calling on a deeper relationship to be an encourager with sincerity. So let me challenge you. Go to someone today, sometime in the next week, and, and seek to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. And this should be someone that you have some level of relationship with. And it's not just like one and done, like, right? Like this isn't a homework assignment that you're gonna turn in. I wanna encourage you, like adopt this as your normal reality. And really just 
think about this before you just check the box. Like, what would it look like to strengthen and encourage a fellow believer? How might you do that? I mean, when Paul sent Timothy, this is what was present, right? It was costly. I mean, Paul was left alone. He said, I'm willing to be left alone in Athens. It was costly. It was intentional. Timothy went with a purpose. It was timely. He went when the encouragement was needed. And it was relational. He was connected with the believers whom he met during their time planting the church there. So then, how might you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, how might you step into this costly, intentional, timely, and relational model and encourage and strengthen a fellow brother or sister in Christ? We need each other. And by the way, this is really great life group fodder. Like, you should be doing this without being told. Like, you should, this should just be part of your life group's DNA. And if you're not in a life group, like, get into one. Seriously. Reach out to Pamela. Belong at westshorefree.org. Her and her leadership team, they would love to help you. You know, you just grab a couple friends, start a life group. Like, we need each other. We need to strengthen and encourage each other. I mean, Paul tells us so. We're no different than the Thessalonians. You realize that? We're living in a hostile land. We need each other. Spiritual warfare is real. It's going to come. If it's here, some of you are already feeling the effects of it. One way or another, it's real. It's happening. It's going to come. But, but as Christ works in you and through you, through the body, we can remain in him. And that's what Paul's calling us to. Remain in your faith. Let me pray. Father, Father, we long to just grow more and more into the glory that you offer us. The whole reason why we exist, the why we have breath in our lung right now is to bring you glory. So help us. There is so much distractions. Our motives are mixed. We are too busy. We don't know how to have hard conversations. The culture around us is just so difficult. We can't do this alone. We need you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, helping us through these situations. And there's, there's, gotta, there's somebody here, I mean, I would imagine there's got to be somebody who's facing this right now, and I ask that you would be at work in this person's life, that you would help them to see a different way forward in these spiritual battles, that they would not succumb, that they'd not be weighed down and just, and just, but that a brother and sister in Christ would see them and strengthen and encourage them and help us to have that mindset, to get out of our own comfort and to step into that, not so that we can like check a box, but so a brother and sister can be encouraged and strengthened in their walk with Christ. Use us, this church, your bride, as you will for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.